0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ.
1: Thank you. Okay, here we go. Welcome. Welcome to week six of First and Second Kings. And you know, tonight we finish First Kings yes we finished first kings and then we have four weeks to make our way through second kings and um, as we uh, are ready to dive in for tonight um, i want to just begin our time with uh, prayer and then we'll just get going so let's pray jesus you are most welcome here and we are very thankful for this beautiful day that you have given us today Uh, Every day is a gift, but we really like this one. This is a beautiful day today, and uh, thank you for that. Thank you for your word and for the wisdom and the truth that it speaks into the specifics of our lives. And so we open up the specifics of our lives to you tonight, and we pray that you would bring intersecting points between your word and what's going on in our lives. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, Soften hard hearts and grant us the courage to respond to whatever you say to us tonight. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so uh, tonight we're going to carry on in our story on King Ahab. Uh, It's not really the story of King Ahab, but I do find it interesting that next to Solomon, we, we, we learn more about King Ahab than almost any other king. Probably any other king. Um, Hezekiah, we get to know him quite well. But we get a pretty deep picture of the career and the life of Ahab. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Marty, she led us through some pretty significant events in Ahab's life as it pertained to the work of Elijah the prophet. And we talked about how in this section of First uh, and Second Kings, there really is a shift away from, not away, but in addition to kingship, to prophet, to the, to the prophetic word. And uh, so last week uh, we looked at the life of Elijah the prophet. And uh, when we finished our story last week, it looked like things were being set up for a, a handing off of sorts from one prophet to the next prophet. Uh, from Elijah to Elisha and so we have the uh, the calling of Elisha and Elisha is going to figure largely in second kings but what's kind of surprising is you get to this point and you expect okay now let's hear the story of Elisha but he kind of disappears for a while Uh, yeah he he disappears Um, but we do find lots and lots of prophets In our chapters that we're looking at tonight some of them have names some of them have no names Uh, some of them as it turns out are not likely even prophets of the Lord maybe prophets of something else Um, by the time we get to chapter 20 we come across a story that among other things reiterates the reality that there are other prophets of Yahweh at work in the land So what we're going to look at is we're going to dive into chapter 20, and uh, we're going to encounter a story, and now what is the backdrop to this story? The backdrop is war. Yeah. The backdrop is war. (laughs) And um, the war is between Israel and who? Syria. Syria, yeah, or it depends on your translation, you could say Aram, right, A-R-A-M but it's Syria, right? So, what I want you to do as we look at this tonight, and in light of also last week, um, what I'd like you to do is, is to think about this guy Ahab, okay? I want you to think about him. Um, I want you to think about him, and I want you to see if you can dissect his personality a little bit we actually get a pretty good insight into the personality of Ahab. And what I think would be kind of fun is for you to look at his personality, but look at his personality in light of your own personality and your own walk with Jesus, okay? I think that there's things that may come occur, that uh, will show up in the life of Ahab that can speak into our life. Because Ahab is a strange figure, a troubler of Israel. Um, But let's look at his personality. Um, And we'll come back to that. Just by way of reflection, when I was thinking about Ahab this week, I was thinking about how, how much of Ahab I have in my own heart. How often do I say the right things? maybe, about who Jesus is, but my behavior, my countenance, my actions belie a truth um, that I hold. It shows shows something different. And I'm reminded, when I think about the life of Ahab, I'm reminded of the words that Dallas Willard once said. He says, the challenge of the Christian life is for us to really believe the things that we say we believe. Mm -hmm. I think that is the challenge of the Christian life, to really believe the things that we say we believe. So... With that in mind, let's let's dive in to the first attack from Syria. So, if you have your Bibles, we'll we'll, we'll dip in a little bit. We'll read a little bit. First um, Kings chapter twenty, verse one. Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all of his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel. And said to him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, Oh, as you say, my lord, O king, I am yours in all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I'll send my servants to you tomorrow around this time. And they will search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and takes it and take it away then the king of israel called all the elders of the land and said mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble for he sent to me for my wives and my children for my silver and my gold and i did not refuse him and all the elders of the, of the people said to him well do not listen or consent so he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, uh, Tell my lord the king, All that you have demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do to me. And more also if dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Well, tell him, let him not who straps on his armor boast boasts himself like he who takes it off. Well, when Ben-Hadad heard this message, he was drinking with the kings in the booths, And he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. So, so we begin. We begin. And uh, we, we've come across this name Ben-Hadad before. Um, when we look at the life of Asa, uh, the king of Judah, a couple weeks ago, Asa invites a different, you're going to come across a couple Ben-Hadads in First and Second Kings gets a little confusing I think they're all it's almost like a title and if you're a leader you go with that name or it could be just the name that's passed on from generation to generation so father to son to son to son okay Um, so Ben-Hadad of Syria um, we come across him by the time we get to chapter 20 we see that Ben-Hadad has a pretty powerful alliance how many kings does he have on his side 32 kings. That's pretty impressive. And they're all seeking to put pressure on Samaria, on Israel, the northern kingdom. And so Ben-Hadad tries to make Israel into a servant, servant servant-type state with Syria in charge. And he says these words, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and your children are mine. So you just hear the swagger in his voice. Now Ahab is like that kid in the schoolyard. He was being bullied and and he's just giving in to the bully because at first he says okay as you say my lord O king i am yours and all that i have is yours right and ben haddad is like a typical bully i had a lot of flashbacks this week when i was looking um, but he's a typical bully it's like he gets what he wants he goes no i want more did i say i wanted all your children you want? no 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 basically what i want is whatever I see I'm just gonna take so um, this time tomorrow I'm gonna come and just take whatever I want what do you got to say about that and Ahab not the most courageous guy around he, he calls his advisors He goes, well, what, what should I do right what should I? and they're like don't give them all your stuff right don't give them, don't give in and so, Ben-Hadad, oh, so uh, Ahab actually sort of kind of stands up to Ben-Hadad in a wimpy kind of way. Because he says to him, he says, look at the language he uses. He goes, well, tell, tell, tell my lord the king, all that you demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing, not I will not do. This thing I can't do, I cannot do. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's groveling, he's still calling him the king he says this is what I cannot do, now Ben-Hadad is like a typical bully when you stand up, when you when you push back a little bit he gets mad, and so he kind of trash talks against Ahab, and then finally Ahab surprisingly, stands up, something snaps and he kind of stands up against Ben Haddad, he says, Well, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Ha <laughs> ha. Right? Now, Ben Haddad, like a typical bully, hears this and he's mad. He's mad. Okay, I'm going to take this little punk out. Guy uh, got 32 kings with me. We got this guy, right? So, a battle is on the horizon. And it doesn't look good, but thankfully and providentially, A prophet is on the horizon as well. And we see this. Look in in verse 13. In verse 13, we come across these words. And behold, a prophet came near Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I'll give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So we get a surprising turn of events. Now we have to remember, this is Ahab. Right? Remember last week? Mount Carmel, Ahab, and all what was going on, the showdown with the prophets of Baal, Baal, right? (laughs) And Yahweh. Baal, yes. Um, But here a prophet comes, and you can just see Ahab going, oh great, (laughs) a prophet is coming. And the prophet says, I come and I bring you good news. Oh, who is this prophet? We don't know who it is. Was it one of the Prophets that were hiding in the cave. Was he one of the seven thousand in Israel who had not bowed their knee to Baal? We what we do know is that up until now, Ahab is is pretty much used to prophetic opposition. And here you have a prophet coming up and saying, "Hey, I got good news. You're actually going to win this battle." And you're like, "You are talking to me, <laughs> I'm Ahab?" And so you're going to be successful in battle. And so against the, thus saith ben Ahab gets an earful of, thus saith the Lord. And the message is, yes, the Syrian force is greater, but they will be given into his hand. Now, why was he given this victory? Which is a big question to ask. Like, this is Ahab. Why did God give him victory? well i don't know it could be it could be caught in in what the prophet says he says he says i will give the into your hand this day and you shall know that i am the lord so could it be that god's desire in all this seems to be again and again that ahab would know the lord Right? that he would know the Lord. The point is, Israel has become so unfaithful, but Yahweh remains faithful to his people. And what's astonishing is that God is still willing to work in Ahab's life. He, his desire is to bring the king to know him. Now, let's just pause here for a moment how many people do you know in your life that you've been praying for that your desire is that they would know the Lord and how many of them are you tempted to give up on and could it be could it be that God is not quite ready to give up on them I think this is, a, like, this is what stood out to me. One of the things is that here's Ahab. God says, you're gonna do, I'm going to do this for you, and then you will know that I am the Lord. His desire is that you will know that I am the Lord. And I don't know, I would have closed the book on Ahab a long time ago. So I think it's something to think about when you think about family members or friends, that you're like, man, there's not a chance they're ever going to know Jesus. We don't know. So in this story, we we find Ahab, he actually listens to the prophet. He takes the offensive and he wins the battle. And it's kind of a strange way he wins the battle. We read that, if you look at it in in verse 15, he musters the servants of the governors of the districts. There's 232. The Hebrew, I think, is pointing out that this 232 are quite young. So there's 232, and then there's, there's, uh, there's um, he musters all the people of Israel, there's 7,000. So it's not a big army, you know, against 33 kings, basically. So he wins. Now, how does he win? Well, he wins because God is on his side. He also wins because Ben-Hadad, and his cronies are so cocky that they're drunk as skunks and they're not even giving clear orders anymore. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 18. This is the order. This is Ben-Hadad. So, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts and they reported to him, men are coming out of Samaria. And so he says, if they come for peace, take them alive. If they come for war, take them alive. (laughs) Like, it doesn't even make sense what he's saying to them. Take like he, so nobody understands his orders. And so all that happens is King Ahab and not a very big army end up defeating Ben-Hadad. And, uh, the rest of the army flee for their lives. So this is, this is quite quite an amazing, amazing story. But then we realize that Syria is not done yet. And, he, and, 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 and um, Ahab's warned about this. Look in verse 22. The prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, come strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. So there's a certain time of year where kings would go to war. And it's usually in a drier season, so their chariots don't get bogged down in mud. So I can, uh, I, my background is studying the Vietnam War. And in the Vietnam War, there are certain times of year where they were offensive. And it was when it was not during the, the, the rainy season. So so this he gets this... Um, he gets this warning again from the prophet. Be careful, Syria is going to try to take you down again. And this time Syria, they understand what went wrong. They actually figured out what went wrong. Do you know why we lost that war? Yes, because you're drunk ben Haddad. No, 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 <laughs> somebody arrest that kid. Um, the reason why we lost that war is very clear. It's very clear. It's, well, their God is the God of the hills. And so when we're fighting kind of in the hill country, well, their God has all the advantage. Our gods are the gods of the plains. And so when we're on flat ground, I mean, we also have a pretty good chariot, so it makes sense, their God doesn't stand a chance. And so get them on the open land and we are going to win this battle. Right? Their gods are the gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Okay? And so, <laughs> it's interesting. Theologically speaking, this strategy had some major flaws. <laughs> Because the Syrians think that they've been defeated because of bad geographical thinking. But they've been defeated because of bad theological thinking. Because Yahweh is not the God of the hills. He's the God of the whole show. He's the God of the universe. And the Syrians are going to have to learn the same lesson that Egypt learned. Now, as, as Pastor Marty was saying last week, in this context, people think of regional gods. So, you know, when you're in Coquitlam, you're under the God of Coquitlam. The moment you go to Port Coquitlam, you're under the God of Port Coquitlam. Our, this God has no jurisdiction once you leave. That's, that was in the ancient world. That's how gods were, were thought of. And so they're like, well, of course, their God is the God of the hills. Our God is the God of the plains. So just look out. Wait till we get them on the plains, then our God will kick in. Now... One of the things I thought we could talk about is, um, and maybe I'll just have you guys talk for a moment. Um, what, uh, in what ways is, is your view of God too small? I mean, no, I don't think any of us would say, oh, God is just a God of this regional area, and if you go to a different region, God has no jurisdiction. Of course, we wouldn't say that. But what are the ways that we limit the spheres in which God can freely operate or powerfully operate does that make sense what are the ways we limit the spaces in which we think God can actually operate okay so I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to talk among yourselves about this because I think it's I mean it's a it's it's a tough question but I think I think sometimes we do put limits on realistically where we think God can actually demonstrate His power in our lives. Okay, so I'm going to have you. Uh, I'm just going to pause for a moment. Okay, so what are some ways that um, that we limit God and what God can do in the world and in our lives? What are some ways that we limit God?
0: Mr. Fletcher was the custodian. He was a real rascal. He drank a lot, and every other word was a swear word. And Marilyn Turner was the principal. Every time she had a job for him, he would go in art. And sometimes he would go on the roof. Well, he belonged to the Legion, the Ridgeway Legion. And whenever I had to go there for an event, he'd tell people well, he knew me. And especially when I became mayor, he was so proud. I was. He knew the mayor. Yeah. Well I never did anything to convert him. I was friends with him. hmm But we have a chaplain at the Ridgeway Legion.
1: Oh, okay. John
0: Davies.
1: Oh, I know John, yeah. Yeah.
0: 2007. Mr. Fletcher accepted salvation. Oh, okay. Just before he died.
1: So what I'm hearing you say is that don't give up. is don't that give you up. you don't give up. That's good. But what are some ways? What are some ways that that, that we limit God um, in terms of our lives? So what are what are some spheres? And I like that because it's easy to give up on somebody. Well, Well, yeah, yeah. I always tell people about my (laughs) the last person I think God would have rescued was me, Mm -hmm. um, given the some of the things I I used to do. Um, So one of the things we were talking about online is um sometimes as as, as christians we believe god for the big things that when we die we will be we in his presence uh in in jesus's presence we know that even in our suffering that god will meet us in our suffering we know about eternal life we know about the, the the glory of the cross that our sins have been forgiven that's all great that's all good and that's all true and we can hold on to that but do we really believe that god is involved in the details of our day-to-day life? Like, do we really think he's he's part of this conversation with this person at Starbucks? Do we really believe that he's part of, you know, just these little things, encounters that you have during the day? Or is that just too small? And so and so I'll deal with those things, right? We keep a little We don't with the extremes on either end. We like really big miracles and a little the help find keys. Oh, that's right. So Ken says we stay in the middle of the bell curve. So yes, the great miracles and help me find my keys, but just in the, <laughs> that's actually so good. But in the everyday, you know, fairly significant but or just significant aspects of the day, you're running like yeah. Yeah, that's we don't expect somebody to be healed necessarily, but we pray for
0: God to comfort them in their pain.
1: Yeah. You know yeah, so we don't pray for healing but we pray that God would comfort them in their pain, because we're kind of hedging our bets in exactly. case God doesn't. Wow, that's 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 very good. Yeah. I think it's an interesting question because I think in many ways, as um, JB Phillips puts it, uh, our God is our God is too small. Um, yeah. Oh, okay, this is, a, yeah, this is a conversion story. Oh, well, very very good. Um, so I praise God for, for my grandma who died this week. She never limited God. Oops, <laughs> she, I lost it. Hang on. Um. She never limited God in his intention, love, faith, and power of the healing. When my granddad was dying from an unknown sickness, grandma challenged him to turn to God, not because he cannot or would not heal him, but because he loves him unconditionally. Granddad received Jesus and was healed completely and quickly and there are over 150 of us now in our family who experience have known god is real and is interested in each of us and he's interested she died at 104 years old yeah a woman of prayer that's a that's a powerful story well here we have us you know the uh, ben Haddad and the people from syria who have who have limited god well god is god you know here but he's not god in the plains he's the god of the mountains All we have to do is get into the plains and God will be impotent. He will not have much of an influence. And so here's the problem though, because when it came time for battle, again, things are not looking very good. It says the armies of Israel are, (laughs) they're described as, in verse 26, you see, uh, and following, it says they're described as two little flocks of goats. (laughs) whereas the syrian army filled the country that does not sound good so in the face of such overwhelming odds guess who shows up a man of god another man of god comes and um, and he tells the king that israel will win the battle now just as an aside i find this interesting ahab never looks for a prophet he never looks for a prophet But God is always sending prophets to him. And so, and and, and gives them this guidance. And um, so, we have this battle. And in this battle, Israel comes out on top. Now, Ben-Hadad, whose swagger has lessened somewhat after all this, uh, he's got a new strategy, a new strategy. Okay, so the hills doesn't work. The battling on the plainstone where here's my new strategy. My new strategy is surrender. I'm going to try surrender. And uh, because he says, you know what? He and his buddies were like, we know. We know that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. They're merciful uh, kings. And so they go and they tie sackcloth around their waist. They put ropes on their heads, basically pictures of servitude. And they pled for mercy from King Ahab. And, and this Ben-Hadad, the bully from a chapter ago, is now referring to himself as your servant, Ben-Hadad. <laughs> yeah, your servant, Ben-Hadad. And he, and, and, and he comes to Ahab. He says, look, have I, I, I'll tell you, this is, this is the deal. All those cities that I took, <laughs> I was just kidding. You can have them back in fact why don't you come into my land and you can buy and sell in, in, in our in our capital and it's just going to be awesome this is going to be really good ahab doesn't consult a prophet even though it looks like there's quite a few of them seemingly around he agrees to the terms and he makes a covenant with ben hadad he goes yeah we're brothers let's make a covenant then hadad wasn't even asking for a covenant. But a covenant, you know, it's a pretty deep relationship. And then he sets him free. Okay? Now, this is important because on one hand, what Ahab does is politically brilliant. Right? It is. You think? It, it's, on one hand, he struck a deal. He got peace. He got prosperity. That no good bully was put into his place. As a king, Ahab had put, um, you know, has, has come across as a benevolent, kind leader. As a politician, Ahab had done well. The only issue is, is politics is one thing. The word of the Lord is a different thing altogether. And... What he does here does not go over very well in God's eyes. Look at verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to this, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, Bless you. Um, And there's some parallels in this story between Ahab and the story of Achan in the uh, the book of Joshua. Ahab's sparing of Ben-Hadad's Life has a way of lining his own pockets, getting richer. uh, Is similar to Achan's use of booty that had been set apart for destruction. So, these prophetic words now accuse him of wrongdoing. And it's a strange story. Do you remember this story? It's like a prophet comes up and he says, all right, hit me. Guy goes, I will not hit you. All right, a lion's going to kill you. Hit me. Yes, I will hit you. (laughs) It's hard. And and, um, he's bleeding, he's got a bandage on, and he's sitting there, and then he cries out these prophetic words to Ahab as he's walking by. And Ahab's like, who are you? And he pulls off the bandage, and lo and behold, it is one of the prophets. And the result is, yes, Ahab, you are going to die. You are going to die because you did not... um, take the king Ben hadad and and, and and kill him and destroy him hand him over to destruction and and but here's the thing for Ben uh, for Ahab none of what he did with Ben hadad none of it crossed his mind as being wrong because he never talks to the prophets he never consults God in Ahab's life he never consults God but well he never got good advice but he never he never seeks advice do you know what i mean like he he never um he never pauses to ask whether or not what god wants him to do but what he's doing makes sense and and i think that is where the danger lies for us because sometimes we do things it just makes sense And that's okay, but how often do we seek spiritual guidance or pray about a decision? And sometimes I'll do that. Well, it's a no-brainer. Of course we should do this, but do I really commit my questions to God? Now, judgment's going to come. Ahab's going to try to avoid this fate. He's going to try to hide from God, but... He can't. And then we read, he goes home after all this. Verse 43, and the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. And so he's back home, and he's sulky, and he's upset. And he's like, God said I'm gonna die, and All oh, he tried to do something nice to ben you and know, you know, and so he's back home. And then we get this really dark story. Because the sun is setting on King Ahab. Um, But not before he and his lovely wife Jezebel cause more destruction. And this next chapter marks a return of our hero, Elijah, yes. Um, And what happens in this story? You guys know the story. Um, It takes place uh, about a vineyard. A guy named Naboth owns a vineyard. And Ahab wants his vineyard. And how does he try to get it? He says, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if that's not good enough, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you. I'll pay you for the vineyard. Um, Naboth is like, no, this is my family vineyard. Um, it's my family inheritance. I want to keep it in the family. Now, a couple things to note here. This is interesting. because Okay, let's look at the passage again. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen again because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and he wouldn't eat any food. And Jezebel, his wife, came in and said to him, why why is your spirit so vexed that you will eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said, give me your vineyard for money or else, and if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, says, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard, you no good, spineless. No, okay, I'm leaving it. Naboth, yes so a couple things to note here what ahab was actually asking of naboth was unethical because all land belonged to god yes but the families could own land and keep the land within their family and there's complex laws in place uh, guarding um, the land and and the laws were in place to prevent land from being concentrated into the hands of a few people okay And the other thing that's kind of interesting here is that nabah uh, or ahab wants the vineyard but what does he want to do with the vineyard wants to make what vegetable Vegetable garden so he wants to convert it from a vineyard to a vegetable garden and he wants it because it's right next to his house we don't know which house it is it's summer house winter palace we're not sure so why is this a big deal? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel is often portrayed as a vine that belongs to God, right? Israel is a vine, God is the vinekeeper, right? Or, or even in Jesus' teaching, I am the true vine, right? So the, the language of vine and vineyard run pretty significant. In the Bible with regards to God's people and God. Ahab wants to make it into a veggie garden. Why is that significant?
0: You know, I think this is, it leads to a very clear principle. Narrow is the path that leads to salvation. Why is the path that leads to destruction? Yeah. With Ben Hayden.
1: now he's very off the path yeah
0: just slightly
1: yeah he's he's certainly off the path path. (laughs) but here's the thing but why vegetable garden that's the question what's the significance of the vegetable garden now i say this with such authority i just learned this last week (laughs) It just—I uh, found out there's one other place in the Old Testament where we come across. No, I don't. Oh, right. Yeah, no, but there's a place where it comes across uh, where we come across a vegetable garden. offering. What's that? Well, that? Yeah, that's just what uh, Ken said. Where it's actually found again, it makes it sound like I knew this. I just I studied this. Um, in deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 9 to 12 we come across a garden of vegetables and that is an image of egypt it's an image of egypt and and it many commentators are suggesting that ahab is trying at this stage trying to make israel look more and more like egypt and now all this takes place in which town? Jezreel. Um, now we've been here before. We've been to Jezreel before. Marty led us there last week. And this is a place where Jezebel hears the news about all the prophets of Baal being slaughtered. And where she says, Elijah's toast. I'm gonna take this guy down, right? Naboth responds, as a man who's trusts God, because what does he say when 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 um, Ahab asked for the land? He says, "God forbid, I can't do that. This is you know, this is the land that God has given me, and I need to pass it on to my ancestors." Right. So, one of the questions I, I, I have for you is, um, <laughs> and Lori, you beat me to it, not necessarily the world economic forum, but what does this passage teach us about? Being or not being, what, what does it teach us about what it means to be a political leader? <laughs> or maybe what does it teach us about how not to be a political leader? What are some of the political implications? I'm going to have you guys talk just for, uh, among, just for one minute, okay? Just one, maybe two minutes. Um, what are some political lessons that we come out of this episode so far? Okay, so, some of the lessons, I mean, there, there's some political lessons, I think, in this. I mean, one of them, well, let me hear, it. what any political lessons that come out of this? Get your wife to do the dirty work? Yeah, okay, so one person put it, you know, talked about private property, or the person can have property to pass it on to their, and the importance of passing it on to their ancestors, um, uh, to their ancestors, to their, uh, to their descendants. Um, here you have a political leader, the highest political leader, whose, whose, whose policy is being developed in order for personal gain. It's for his vegetable garden, right? so he's not you know you you go back to the early days of solomon not the early early days but the you know those that window where he did he he did not too bad what his desire was is to provide for the people to have wisdom to be able to provide for the people he says there's so many people i'm not sure how we could provide food and everything and then we read this pretty cool part where it says you know every israelite you know lived under their own had their own, lived up, was a, their own vineyard. And it, well, I think it was something like that, yeah. Um, but it, what was communicated is they, they had, they, they lived in plenty because Solomon was caring about the needs of the people. And then Solomon changes and he cares more about, you know, peacocks and gold and, and things like that. Here you have Ahab, he's, he's not at all thinking about the benefits of the people whatsoever. He's about ready to commit incredible injustice for his own personal desire, his own personal need. And um, we we get an insight into into Ahab's character again, and the character of Jezebel. Uh, When Ahab is vexed and sullen and sulky, uh, the one who really seems to be in charge is Jezebel and she does take matters into her own hands, and she's contemptuous, and she's like, why are you lying down? Don't worry, I'll take care of things. Um, And she's like, you know what, why are you sulking, right? And so she acts like a king. She's decisive, albeit an evil king. And so what does she do? She, um, She writes some letters in the king's name to basically get rid of the obstacle which is Naboth and so she uh, sets up this uh, this meeting and they have Naboth sit in the very front and she has some 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 hooligans uh, say hey look uh, we heard Naboth um, cursing God saying these horrible things about God that's blasphemy Uh, he needs to be dealt with according to the law and so he is he's stoned to death right He's stoned to death, he gets, she gets word, it's interesting she gets word, so these guys that you know, give the false testimony must be working for her, and they send a report to her about the turn of events. And then in verse, tw- in verse uh, 15, uh, Jezebel is quite happy now, she tells um, Ahab to get off his butt and to go and take the vineyard that he wanted so badly in the first place. And Ahab, I mean, he's such a wimp. Um, he gets up and he does it. Um, and and when he goes there, he's confronted by Elijah. And he goes there and, and Elijah speaks to him. And Elijah basically, in a few words, describes, he says, I know what you did. I know what you and your family did to, to Naboth. And what does, um, what does Ahab call Elijah, who, who he's had quite a few encounters so far? My enemy. Yeah. Have you found me, O oh, my enemy? I think it's interesting because Ahab at this point, he's no longer acting like a king. He's no longer calling Elijah, what do you, he used to call him, the troubler, right? Troubler of Israel, right? He's not even thinking in terms of Israel anymore. He's just saying, "Elijah, you're my enemy. You are my enemy. You're, you you're my nemesis, right?" And I think this is, and, and then Elijah just lays out a pretty forthright and heavy judgment. He goes. Because what you did was evil in the sight of the lord behold i will bring disaster upon you i will utterly burn you up will cut off from ahab every male bond or free in israel and i'll make your house like a house of jeroboam the son of Nebat, like the house of basha the uh, son of ahijah for the anger for which you have provoked me and because you have made israel to sin and jezebel the lord also said the dog shall eat jezebel within the walls of jezreel anyone belonging to ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Um, in Earlier on, it says, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dog shall lick up your blood. Okay, this is not looking very good for Ahab. Right? This is what you have provoked the Lord to anger. You have caused, caused the people to sin. You have brought them into idolatry you have killed the innocent ahab this is what's going to happen to you now this is where ahab is is very human this is why i just think he's such an interesting character because what does ahab do oh i don't care what you say i'll do it what does he do Yeah, he mourns. And he also repents. He puts on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And then God says, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his, in his days, but in his Sundays I will bring disaster upon his house. I just find him so interesting. And we get a little hint of this when he was confronted by Elijah in Mount Carmel. It looks like he kind of was okay for a while. Ahab changes his tune. He repents in the face of judgment. But the thing about Ahab, he's, he's, he's reactive. He's reactive. He's always responding to what is in front of him. But he repents and i just i just think it's it's interesting this character i mean if i were to ask you just for fun and maybe you don't answer this but it's something to think about where do you find connecting points in ahab's life with your own it's a that's a probably too personal of a question um Yeah, and, and Ahab's always reactive, and, and often in my life, I'm reactive rather than being proactive. Um, yeah, and, and when I think about Ahab, he's, he's, he's this guy who, who does what seems to be right in his mind, maybe to his own benefit, doesn't consult God, God's grace is still on him. And he just kind of rides that for a little bit. <laughs> One connecting point that I find with me and Ahab is that when Ahab does not get what he wants, he sulks. <laughs> and I find myself sulking sometimes if I want something and I think I ought to get it, or I, I feel like I've, I've been unfairly treated, I can get vexed and sullen with the best of them, right? So I just think he's such an interesting figure and I, I see a lot of dynamics in his life that are in the human heart and I you know personally I see in my own heart a lot of this, you know cutting God off from certain spheres of life my God's too small staying in the uh, what we can call it, in the bell curve right not on the two ends yeah
0: Ahab should have
1: learned not to have contact with him. Well, he should have. He should have learned that, but... but I
0: mean, I, I was thinking of Samson and Goliath, who mostly trick. Samson.
1: Yeah, yeah, but he's... But in, in this case, he's, he's, he's married to her, right?
0: In so
1: many ways. yeah no Yeah. Well, let's see how he ends. Um, I like the, the story of uh, power of evil and the power of God comes to a head. I also just think there's a humanness to Ahab, and, and is, is this, and this is why I love the Old Testament, is that in the Old Testament, you don't get. You don't get cardboard cutout personalities. There's a lot of nuance in the Old Testament, and there is in the New Testament, but there's a lot more historical narrative in the Old Testament, but you get a lot of nuance in people's lives. People are not these, you know. Um, you know two dimensional people there there's some you see some of the uh, the rhythms of the heart and what i love about the old testament is that when i look at the you know kind of the dynamics of the heart that you see in solomon and in ahab and in saul and in samson and you know when we went through judges last year and a lot of the different people and gideon and different i can it doesn't take me a lot to put myself in their sandals and i can see my own heart at work there and again in the bible there's no hero except one there's only god and so everyone else is has got uh has got foibles has weaknesses um elijah has weakness they all have weaknesses Um, but god is the only hero and so i love reading the old testament i love entering into the narratives because i can i can see myself in those in those narratives so Big surprise, peace between Syria and Israel only lasts three years. And despite his defeat, the king of Syria still held on to a city, a very important city. And the city is called Ramoth Gilead in the Transjordan. In your notes, I have a little picture of where it is. <laughs> I actually looked up that church where I got this from the internet. Yeah, so yeah, some, some church down in the States. Uh, I would believe it's in it's in Israel, right? Yeah, yeah, it would be. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I'll have to look that one up. Um, but it's it's a it's a city that that uh, Israel and Judah decide to try to get back. And it looks like, so at this point of the story, we're introduced to the king of Judah. And we're going to find out more about him, but his name's Jehoshaphat. And and it looks like, at least for a time period, there is a, an alliance between the north and the south. Uh, at least an alliance long enough to take on um, Syria and to regain Ramoth Gilead. Um, Unlike Ahab, Ahab's like, all right, we got an alliance, let's go, let's attack. And Jehoshaphat's like, maybe we should pray? And Ahab's like, fine, if you have to pray, we'll pray. But Jehoshaphat's rather devout, he wants to seek the Lord before he goes on any major endeavor, which sounds quite wise, but it's certainly outside of Ahab's wheelhouse, right? Right? So look at verse 5 chapter 22 verse 5 and jehoshaphat said to the king of israel inquire first for the word of the lord then the king of israel gathered the prophets together about 400 of them which prophets probably the wrong ones we don't know that the text is not clear where these guys come from um, but he gathers prophets And uh, so you just see Ahab, it's like, fine, there's some prophets. Go go get a bunch of prophets. Bring them in here, right? And um, the relationship between these prophets and the Lord is is unclear. And so, but Jehoshaphat is still wanting to know. And so he says in verse 7, oh, yeah, so they ask these prophets, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And the prophets all say, Go up, for the Lord will give it to you, Uh, will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, yeah, there's this one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of uh, Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesied good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, well, let not the king say so. Uh, then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Judah were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes in the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And the prophets were prophesying before them, including this guy named Zedekiah. And so <laughs> here's i was like yeah there is this prophet but i hate him he's always just you know i just he never says anything good he's always saying mean things about me which just as a time out when you seek advice when you seek guidance do you look for an echo chamber or do you look for someone who who maybe will speak the truth into your life it's easy on social media to just talk among your echo chambers and everybody believes the same thing and everybody will say the same thing so but jehoshaphat's like no we i want to make sure want to make sure and so reluctantly ahab sends for micaiah while they're waiting <laughs> these goofy prophets are like prophesying and they're like oh don't worry you go into battle oh yeah you guys are gonna win don't worry and then Z- this one guy named Zedekiah is like, he gets a little carried away. He's like, you know, you see these horns? These horns symbolize like just how you're going to gore your enemy. That's how, oh boy, you guys are just going to kick some serious butt when you go up to get this land back, right? And Zedekiah is just all excited and there's a lot of prophetic theater going on. And, and, um, they're saying, for sure, if you go up, you can get pure and utter victory. Now, the, the messenger is bringing Micaiah, is nervous. And he's like, uh, let me get a, give you a piece of advice. You know, whatever the king says, just say something good, okay? Don't be saying any of this, you're not going to do well. Just be positive. And uh, Micaiah says, you know, what the Lord says to me is what I'm going to have to say. But it's interesting because when he shows up, and they said, you know, Jehoshaphat and, and Ahab said, should we go up against Syria? Mekhi's like, oh, yes, go up against Syria, and you will surely win. <laughs> and, and Ahab gets mad. He's he like, stop lying to us. Tell us actually what you think. And so he says, all right, you want to know what I'm going to <laughs> um, He says, all right. Um, and, and he basically says, You know, it's not going to end well, and God has thought about this a long, he's way ahead of you on this, and this is going to be your downfall. In fact, he's orchestrated all these prophets to be here, and he's given them a lion spirit. That's why they've they've been lying to you. You know, well, so, you know, the the one prophet, Zedekiah, who's got the horns and, and, you know, doing all this theater, gets really mad because he's he's being called out. So he goes over to Micaiah and he slaps him. And he says, oh, how dare you say such a thing. And, and uh, Micaiah says, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into the inner chamber to hide yourself. Um, well, he says, you know, you're, you're, you're going, it's not going to go well for you. And so the king of Israel, they say, he says, seize Micaiah. I'm done with this guy. Throw him in prison. Give him bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah says, well, if you return in peace, the Lord is not spoken by me. (laughs) So, that's such an interesting story. Um, So what happens? Well, with Micaiah in prison, Ahab still has to make a decision whether or not to go attack against Syria. Now, if you're Ahab, this makes sense, right? In all of Ahab's dealing with Syria, what has God's word been to him? What's that? Yeah. Or in, in all of God's, yeah, dealings, like, don't worry about Syria. Any You will defeat Syria. Don't worry if they attack you. You will prevail. So Ahab, again, he's not consulting God, or in this take he did, but he's not really listening. He's listening to the, to the echo chamber. In his mind, it's like... Every time, every time God speaks to me about Syria, it's always positive. We always beat Syria, right? It's like, uh, which hockey team? (laughs) They always, I will say the Canucks, they always beat the Leafs. How's that? There we go. We always beat Syria. Of course we're going to beat Syria. Of course we should go up against Syria. We always come out on top. So he makes a rational choice based on the past. Of course, God's with me on this one. But you know what? Just to be on the safe side, because if it doesn't go well, and let's say this Micaiah is right, well, I don't want to die. So what I'm going to do, (laughs) it's funny, Jehoshaphat. you dress like a king, I'm just going to dress like a commoner. And that way nobody will know that I'm king and I'll be okay. Because he thinks by, with his disguise, he can escape detection and survive. Which again, rationally makes sense. See, the thing with Ahab, he lives his life as if God does not matter. In many ways, Ahab is a functional atheist. He may believe, you know, he knows all about the gods and whatever. But really, God does not factor at all in his life. And he doesn't, he, he reasons things out, but he doesn't reason them out theologically. Because the reality is, if Micaiah is telling the truth, doesn't matter what kind of disguise he puts on, Right? If God is God, he's toast. He's done. So he lives his life as a functional atheist. Now, when we're reading the story, we're not 100% sure, but we're pretty sure that Micaiah is telling the truth, right? We're pretty sure Micaiah, he knows what's going on, and we know about the other prophecies. Ahab is predestined to listen to these false prophets, and he's going to die. And so he disguises himself, but his disguise is is about as effective as Jeroboam's wife's disguise. It's just about as effective as Saul's disguise when he goes to visit the witch of Endor. Apparently, Apparently, one of the lessons from the Old Testament is that God can see through disguises. He can see into our hearts. And being the author of history, that should not come as a surprise. Now, Jehoshaphat's wearing his royal robes. And in the heat of battle, they start chasing Jehoshaphat. And he just makes it clear. He goes, I'm not the king. And they say, we're going to get the king of Israel. I'm not the king of Israel. I'm the king of Judah. And they're like, all right, turn around. Let's go get the king. And so they can't find the king king of Israel. But one guy, one guy apparently takes an arrow and just shoots it. Just randomly shoots it. And that arrow finds its way through the horses and the chariots and the army and through the armor and into Ahab. And Ahab lies down, he's dying, and he dies. And there's no more. And and his army is, is done. And so. Ahab's attempt to deceive God has failed and he is gone. Now, two more prophecies need to be fulfilled. Well, a few more prophecies, actually. The whole dogs licking up blood, we realize when they, are, when the chariots are being washed after the battle, that the dogs are drinking and licking up the blood. And then an interesting phrase, I don't know if you notice this, and prostitutes were washing themselves in it. Yeah, that's kind of gruesome. The only thing I can make sense of is that the image of the prostitutes is the image of temple prostitutes, which is an underlying the fact that Ahab had led the nation into idolatry. So it's a picture of idolatry. Ahab married unwisely, which led him astray even more than Jeroboam. He's not part of the house of David, so he's going to have the same fate as Saul. He's a troubler of Israel. He was opposed by God's prophets. He was rejected because he wouldn't destroy an enemy of God. He was troubled by a lying spirit, resorted to a disguise, and now he's dead. And next week, when we come across more of his family, it's not looking good for them. And so one of the uh, one of the questions that came to mind there's lots of questions when I was putting this uh, together tonight one of the questions was you know there's so many times where a prophetic word could have cut to Ahab's heart and brought about real change doesn't really the one time he puts on sackcloth he's he's almost there but he, he's had, he's given so many chances And yet, he lives his life as if God does not matter. And I always am aware aware of that because one of the characteristics of the modern world, the world that we live in, is that the modern world trains us to live our lives as if God does not matter. We believe in God. We may believe all the right things about God. But in how we live our lives, we live our lives as if he does not really matter. And we're reactive. We're reactive. But we don't seek them out. And we don't listen to them. And so the question I have for you, just as we conclude, is this question. Have you ever had an experience where the word of God cut to your heart and challenged you what you're doing deeply? You ever had that experience? Where someone spoke the word of God and it just went right to your heart? Have you ever had that? One of the dangers of being in the church for a long time is that you can hear the word of God and you grow immune to it. I remember one time I was out with a friend of mine and uh, we were out at a restaurant and uh, somebody did something really dumb. One of the waiters did something dumb. And I, and I, I was just being cheeky and I said something you know, a bit smart aleck about the person, and and my friend just looked at me, and he says, and all he said to me, he just looked at me, and he wasn't condemning, or mean, or anything like that, he just looked at me, he goes, judge not, that's all he said, oh, I'll tell you, those words went right into my heart, like, as prophetic words, they cut to my heart, and I was just like, my sin was as exposed to me as I could, and I just thought, oh, I was so, so judgmental, at that moment problem is is that over time especially if you're in the church a lot you know you hear the Word of God we hear the Word of God and and does it does it cut the same way because you can grow our hearts can grow quite immune to allowing God's Word to cut in I think there's a warning in the life of Ahab on this one any questions comments Yeah, when God speaks, we can say it's for somebody else. That's very, yeah. How in the world do some Christian theologians believe open theism? Yeah. And there's type of prophecies. Yeah, I, I think it's a way, it's it's a way to deal with suffering, Kevin. So he, Kevin's asking, the there's this theology called open theism. Open theism is a theology that says God doesn't know the future, which well yeah i know it it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but people come up with these ideas not based on scripture but based on trying to deal with suffering in the world saying well maybe god didn't know it was going to happen that sort of thing Um, but i'm pretty sure that, that that's that's how i'd answer that question kevin well let me close in prayer and then uh and if we have more questions we can okay let's pray lord we thank you for your word it's a tough word and 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 the the life of ahab is such a warning to us to uh you know to live in echo chambers where we just listen to the people that we that we want to hear from who will say the things that we want them to say where we never seek you out but we just use our own reason our own rational capacities to make all decisions and not ever consult you This reminds us that your ways are not the world's ways. And that is very easy to live our lives believing all the right things, but living our lives as functional atheists. Lord, your desire is for us to be alive to you and alive to your word. And so we do pray that you would give us ears to hear your word and soften hard hearts and that we would allow your word which is alive and active to cut into our hearts and speak truth into our minds. And that it would lead us to repentance and to renewal and to walk a lively walk with you. That is our desire. We cannot do this on our own. We can only do this by by your strength through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We thank, we're thankful that we live on, on the other side of the cross, that we know that our sins have been forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross and that we have been adopted into your family, that we can call you Yahweh, we can call you Father. And we are your adopted children. So we're, we're thankful for your amazing grace, but we pray as Paul prayed, that we would live up to what we've already attained that we would live our lives in response to the grace that you have shown us. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.